Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. In this episode, we hear from Ruth Ozeki, who joined us in November 2014 at Seattle's Town Hall for a talk about time and her writing life. Prior to Ozeki's talk, Amy Wheeler, a playwright and executive director of Hedgebrook, introduces Ozeki. Following the introduction, we hear from a young writer from Sal's Writers in the Schools program. Elementary school student Lydia Blair shares a poem she wrote. Following the talk, I interview Ozeki. At the time of her visit, Ozeki had written three novels. Her novel, A Tale for the Time Being, was published in 2013 and shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. As well as her novels, Ozeki had written short stories, essays, and produced two films. In 2010, Ozeki was ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest. Since then, Ozeki has continued to publish, including her most recent offering, The Face, A Time Code, published in 2016. In her talk that is self-reflective, humorous, and insightful, Ozeki explores the writer's relationship with time and, more importantly, ways in which we can learn to cultivate patience to be better writers and better humans. We learn how Ozeki's time in a neo-Luddite enclave helped her redefine her relationship with technology and allowed her to give birth to her most successful novel. We also explore how ideas from 13th century priest Dojen Zenji remain relevant in our lives today. Listen and find out why Ozeki believes that practicing patience is the most deeply subversive thing we can do. We hope you enjoy this talk with Ruth Ozeki. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. We are thrilled to be partnering um, on this evening with Seattle Arts and Lectures. And Ruth Ozeki is the perfect writer to launch this fresh partnership because she embodies our proposition that what happens at Hedgebrook doesn't stay at Hedgebrook. The work that's generated in our cottages makes its way into the world through stories, um, movies, plays, songs, and um, transforms hearts and minds. Ruth generated uh, large portions of her beautiful book, A Tale for the Time Being, in our cottages. And we've been so proud to watch from Whidbey as this story has made its way into the world. If you've read her novels, You know that to be in Ruth Ozeki's presence and in her mind, whether in conversation over dinner, on a walk in the woods, or in a full house at town hall, is to be spellbound. She bends time and expands your mind and literally alters the atmospheric pressure of a room. I've been able to experience this in different settings, and one of them was a dinner party in New York City. It was one of those thousand-dollar-a-plate affairs, beautiful apartment on Central Park West. Gloria Steinem was one of our featured guests. And right before we started the dinner, I asked Ruth if she would lead the group in a, a meditation. Um, she's also a Zen Buddhist priest, so this wasn't completely off-the-wall request, but it was very short notice. And um, she did it. 
And it was a, a beautiful moment looking around the room and seeing these very high-powered um, powerhouse women who had rushed there to come in for dinner to meet Gloria Steinem and then be asked to, to close their eyes and breathe together. And there were some glances around the table, you know, like, what's going on here? And then they did. And something shifted. And when they opened their eyes, I looked around the table and everyone was smiling and everyone was at ease. And it was the most beautiful evening. It was supposed to end at 9 o'clock, and when I left at midnight, it was still going strong. So Ruth has these superpowers. In a recent interview in our newsletter, she said, for me, writing fiction is a kind of thought experiment or a form of speculation and reflection. And I write novels in order to think about the world in this way. Ruth has a way of working herself into her work, but instead of being on a hero's journey or a quest for the Holy Grail, our Ruth is excavating her own, her own story, a human in the process of being. She takes us inside her journey with refreshing honesty, poignancy, and wit. Her documentary, Halving the Bones, begins as a simple quest to bring her grandmother's bones home to her mother, whose memory is slipping into the grip of Alzheimer's. Blending home movies and documentary footage, Ruth pieces together 100 years of her matrilineal line from Japan to Hawaii to Connecticut and reckons her own identity in the process as a daughter who belongs to two cultures. In a tale for the time being, a novelist named Ruth discovers a diary in a Hello Kitty lunchbox that's washed up on a beach near her home in the Pacific Northwest coast of Canada and becomes drawn into the world of now, a troubled teenager in Tokyo who wants to recount her great-grandmother's story before she dies. It is in this courageous act of creative self-reflection, an act that is once autobiographical, fictional, epic, and intimate, where Ruth's work captures our hearts and minds. As she explores what it means to be Ruth Ozeki, she draws us into contemplating what it means to be. Please join me in welcoming Ruth Ozeki. Look at you all. Thank you for coming. <laughs> this is really, really nice. Um, uh, thank you, Seattle Arts and Lectures, for, for um, inviting me, and, and Hedgebrook for um, once again inviting me and, and providing such a delicious spread. Um, and, and Lydia, thank you for your lovely, lovely poem. I will never look at the sun in the same way. So thank you very much for that. And your dress is beautiful. <laughs> I, I didn't get the email about the dress code. <laughs> and I'm just coming from a Zen retreat, so I don't have a pretty dress to wear. <laughs> um, so this is, this is really, this is wonderful. And, and thank you so much for, for coming. Um, you know, I was, I was trying to think of a title for this talk. Um, you know, I like it when talks have titles. It, it gives me a focus. It gives me a place to start. And, um, and I was thinking about, you know, I wanted to talk about time. And I was thinking about calling it something like taking our time, time management for writers and everyone else. 
Um, but I realized this was kind of ridiculous because, um, you know, obviously time isn't something to be taken, right? Um, it doesn't belong to us or to anyone. And, and time really can't be managed either. Um, and, and certainly not by writers. <laughs> the idea of, of writers managing time is absurd. Uh, writers are some of the most inefficient beings on earth. We're never in time for anything. We spend most of our waking moments out of time, lost in a dream, out of sync with the reality-based, non-writerly life forms around us. You know, and I suppose it's true that, that some writers, mostly journalists, um, learn to work on deadline, and, and um, even some fiction writers, I've heard, manage to write two or three books a year. Um, these writers clearly have some pretty intense time management skills, but I'm not one of them. Um, I'm what you might call a temporally challenged writer. And I know this about myself, so why would I choose to talk about time management like I actually knew something about it? But you see, this is what happens. You write a book with time in the title, and suddenly you start to feel like you're an authority on the subject. This is a terrible mistake. You never believe your own publicity. So the title of the book in question is A Tale for the Time Being, and it's a novel, and it was published in 2013. Uh, my previous novel, All Over Creation, was published in 2003. <laughs> 2003 is 10 years ago. 10 years is an impossibly long time in the world of commercial publishing. Ten years is like the Ice Age. It's like the Eocene, or even the Cretaceous. Ten years ago, in publishing, dinosaurs were walking the earth. <laughs> Humans had just lost their gills. We were pulling ourselves out from the primordial swamp and learning to walk upright. We were teaching ourselves the rudiments of language. So you can see, I'm no expert in efficiency or so-called time management, and I'm really not holding up my writing practice as any kind of model. Um, if there are any aspiring writers in the audience, believe me, there are far more efficient ways of writing novels than mine. And there are many other writers out there who can teach you how to do it, so listen to them. <laughs> What I do have however, is um, a lot of experience biding my time. In the eons it took me to write A Tale for the Time Being, I spent a lot of time thinking about time, and a lot of time thinking about writing, and a lot of time thinking about not writing. And these are the thoughts that I'd like to share with you today. Um, Actually, you know, these days, pretty much everyone is a writer. Um, but even if you're one of those rare people who isn't, please know that what I have to say about writing can apply to more or less everything that we humans do. Um, so just substitute the word life or living for writing, and I think you'll probably do fine. So during that impossibly long uh, span of time from 2003 to 2013, I was suffering from a serious writerly affliction. Um, it wasn't writer's block exactly, because I was writing, or at least I was trying to write. 
you know, I sat down at my computer every morning. Characters would come to me and start to whisper, suggesting these shadowy ideas for plots. Themes would start to emerge and images to resonate. Days would pass and my nascent fictional world would start to grow. Cautious, but fueled by hope, I'd fill pages with scenes, and in the evening I'd shut down my computer with an uneasy sense of satisfaction, which grew into an uneasy sense of excitement as the days turned into months, and the story, or dare I say, the novel, grew larger and lusher, richer and more complex. But then, invariably, 100 or 200 pages into the project, I would face the computer monitor one morning and find that overnight, my beautiful, lush, round world had gone flat. Shriveled and limp, it lay on the floor like a deflated balloon, and no amount of huffing and puffing could resurrect the shimmering bubble of fictional promise. I'd spend the next few months futilely moving commas around before finally giving up and succumbing to despair despair being another very common writerly affliction. And, and it was during one of these interludes of despair that I got an email from Amy, inviting me to spend three weeks as a guest writer in residence at Hedgebrook. Now, I'd heard of this place, you know, a writer's retreat center for women with beautiful cottages in the woods, solitude, gourmet meals, a bottomless cookie jar. Amy said that my only duty would be to show up at dinner at 5.30, which would be cooked for me by a chef. <laughs> and the rest of the time would be mine to focus on my writing. So this sounded like paradise, or it would have sounded like paradise to a writer who was writing well, but at the time, I wasn't. And I admit, I felt a bit ambivalent. And that was before Amy informed me that the cottages where we were to do our writing had no Wi-Fi. No Wi-Fi? <laughs> no fiber optic? Not even a phone jack for dial-up? When I heard this, um, I, I felt both disbelief as well as, I confess, a slight sense of relief, you know, I I impossible. I, I couldn't possibly go to a neo-Luddite enclave like that. <laughs> How could I write without the internet? I needed my bookmarks, my news feeds, my links to research, and Google. You know, what if I had a question while I was writing? You know? <laughs> Everything I rely on, my resources, references, Wikipedia, are all online. My head is quite literally in the cloud. How could my mind function without it? So inside this last and seemingly rhetorical question lurked a very real fear. Um, at the time, I was honestly afraid I was losing my mind. My writer's mind had always been such a good friend to me, lively, lucid, and full of surprises. But something had changed, and now it felt different, unfamiliar, frozen and panic-stricken, or dull and sluggish. You know what it feels like when your arm falls asleep and you try to make a fist, but you can't? That's what my, hand, my mind felt like, like a hand that could no longer grip. This fear started when my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. 
I spent hours on the internet reading about the disease, and over the years that I cared for her, I became intimately familiar with the corrosive effects of plaque on her brain function, all the, all the while watching my own mind for signs. And of course, I often found them. My journals from that time are filled with adjectives like foggy, scattered, distracted, vague, fuzzy, fractured, fragmented, overwhelmed. I thought about getting genetic testing, but did I really want to know? Maybe it was hormonal, or ADD, or just garden variety grief and depression. And all of this was affecting my writing. When Amy's email came, I'd already abandoned three or four attempts at novels, including A Tale for the Time Being. I thought I'd lost the capacity to hold complex fictional worlds in my mind. I was pretty sure I'd never finish another novel. So I almost turned down Amy's invitation, but good sense and the lure of free meals and the cookie jar prevailed. And I was just determined to use my time at Hedgebrook wisely and efficiently. So rather than waste time working on a novel that would surely go nowhere, I decided to work on an idea I had for a memoir instead. I loaded up my car with journals and books, the kind with pages that don't require a power supply, and I drove down to Whidbey Island. But by the time I got there, I'd changed my mind. Instead of working on the memoir, I decided to make one last attempt at wrestling the intractable novel manuscript into shape. This was it, I decided. If, after three weeks, I still couldn't make the damn thing work, I would trash it delete it from my hard drive, and give up on it completely. So that was my intent, and I'd like to share some of the things that I learned about my mind unplugged during those three weeks of retreat. So the first thing I noticed was how much my mind had come to rely on what's outside itself. I arrived at Hedgebrook, moved into my cottage, set up my computer, and immediately I felt the need to launch my browser and check my email. But I couldn't, and there was no help for it. I would have to go to work. So I launched my word processing program instead and opened the manuscript of the novel. Within moments, questions and doubts started to arise, as of course they do when you sit down to write. And that's when I became aware of my mind sort of reaching outside of itself, restless like twitchy fingers, out into cyberspace, groping for answers for Google, for Wikipedia, for some kind of external brain. I was aware of this reflex rising up over and over again, but because I wasn't connected to the internet, I had to make do with what was inside my mind instead. This outward groping was not a pleasant sensation. In my little unwired cottage, I felt restless, anxious, and insecure. But since there was nothing else to do while I was waiting for dinner, I persevered. <laughs> and little by little, the writing started to come. Paradoxically, I felt equally unsettled when I successfully resolved a problem, like finishing a tough scene or chapter, or even just finding the right word. I'd feel a burst of relief, but immediately after, my mind would start groping for a hit of online distraction as a reward for accomplishing the task. 
<laughs> Even just hitting Command S and saving a document could trigger this urge. <laughs> the internet had become a way of punctuating time and savoring satisfaction, kind of like a cigarette after sex. In fact, being disconnected felt a lot like quitting smoking. I used to be a very enthusiastic and dedicated smoker, and when I quit, my cravings were intense and compulsive. But little by little, as the nicotine left my system and I developed some faith that I would indeed survive without a cigarette, the cravings began to subside. My internet withdrawal felt, like, I felt a lot like kicking a chemical addiction. Now, addiction is, by its nature, impatient. It wants gratification now. But impatience is death for a novelist. My internet addiction had trained my mind out of the habit of dogged and plotting attention to detail that long-form fiction demands. I'm sure I'm not the only novelist who have experienced this, which is why I sometimes worry about the future of the literary novel. But I suppose I don't really need to worry because even if I could still write them, who's going to take the time and have the presence of mind and focus to read them? Recently, I'm beginning to suspect that my reader's brain, too, once trained to go deep, may have been similarly corrupted. I can't seem to read entire books like I used to. I'm too impatient. My crab-like, surface-skimming, lateral mind goes scuttling off after the next hyperlink that promises to take me elsewhere, where a better experience may or may not be waiting for me. So this intermittency, this may or may not factor, is important. Um, behavioral psychology has proven that if you train a rat to press a lever for food pellets, but reward her only intermittently, you know, at random intervals, she will become a persistent and compulsive lever pusher. This intermittent reward or reinforcement is called a variable ratio schedule, and it produces behaviors that exhibit both the highest rate of response and the greatest resistance to extinction. In other words, it produces the most stubborn and persistent habits. Think gamblers at slot machines or you at your computer checking your email. Shopping works like this too. So does hunting, and so does research. Now, I love to research. Every piece of information I unearth has a story in it. And these infobites are the seeds of my narrative, and the plots and characters of my novel grow out of them. It used to be that I had to physically go to a library, in order to collect the stuff to put in my novels. But now, surfing the web has become my chief means of procuring information. Now, the entire library and the shopping mall and the slot machines have moved inside my computer. And while this is convenient, it's also a problem, because information is stuff, immaterial stuff, perhaps, but still subject to the same rules that govern any clutter. And clutter, as any compulsive hoarder will tell you, can paralyze and overwhelm. A, a friend of mine who's a psychologist was uh, writing a book on creativity. And ironically, he was also suffering from writer's block. And he told me that his mind felt like a warehouse stocked with materials to build a house. He'd collected all sorts of joists and beams and plywood and 20 different kinds of shingles, 
but instead of building the house, he just kept accumulating more shingles. I could relate. With so many shingles in my warehouse, how could I possibly remember what I had in stock? Which brings me to the subject of memory. A while ago, I experienced a disconcerting moment of cognitive dissonance while reading a book. I was trying to remember something that the author had written several chapters earlier, and I couldn't. It was like I didn't know how. My mind tried to activate the book's global search function when it suddenly occurred to me, no, wait, this is a book, the kind made of paper with a cover and pages and no digital functionality. This struck me as deeply wrong somehow, that the only way to find the reference I needed was to flip back and manually operate the pages. <laughs> the book felt broken, but so did my mind. And even more disturbing, I was having a conversation with a friend and needed to access a fact about something. I, I think it was the term for the breathing pore of the banana slug. <laughs> right? <laughs> And for a single jarring moment, for a single jarring moment, my mind mistook itself for a search engine. You know, my question, what do you call the blowhole of a slug, initiated the search, <laughs> and then nothing, right? My brain just crashed and hung there like a frozen hard drive or a stalled internet connection sort of rotating uselessly like that spinning pizza of death. <laughs> oh, it's no wonder I feel stupid all the time. Um, it's called a pneumostome, by the way. <laughs> the blowhole of the slug. <laughs> so I'd been, I've been worried about gaps in my memory and holes in my brain ever since my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But in my unwired cottage in the Hedgebrook Woods, I began to suspect that the lapses I experience are not gaps at all, but rather the illusion of gaps created by the very technology that was invented to fill them. So several years ago, um, I read an article in the Journal of Higher Education called The End of Solitude that talked about this phenomenon, how technology creates the very problem it's intended and designed to, to solve. Thus, television creates boredom by trying to alleviate it because it erodes the skills we need in order to entertain ourselves. The author argues that the internet creates loneliness by enabling constant connectivity with our social networks, thereby defamiliarizing solitude and turning it into something to fear and avoid rather than to savor. I think something analogous is going on with the way my mind experiences memory and information retrieval. My cyborg mind has become so conditioned by search engines with their slick digital interfaces and high-speed access that now it mistakes itself for one. It expects to perform like Google and Wikipedia and naturally finds itself sluggish and wanting. So, in short, what I was experiencing was nothing less than a crisis of faith. The internet had made me profoundly insecure. I'd lost faith in my mind, this intimate, immediate, and very local engine that drives my creativity. The internet, 
always on and ever present, exposes me incessantly to a cacophony of genius that's infinite and boundless. The entire intellectual history of humankind, not to mention every novel that's ever been on the New York Times bestseller list, is there. Actually, not there, here. All those brilliant, genius minds of human history have taken up residency here, in my house, in my study, inside my damn computer. They're right here, lurking just below the thin and insubstantial layer of pixels that represents my flimsy manuscript with all my feeble thoughts and my woeful words. It's no wonder I have trouble focusing. No wonder my small mind could never be enough. No wonder I thought I'd never finish another novel. But, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the internet is bad. I, I love the internet. <laughs> you know, I live in desolation sound, right? <laughs> I rely on the internet for my connection to the great wide world and would never want to be without it. But sometimes I need to step back to step away. During my retreat in my cottage in the middle of the primeval Hedgebrook Forest, I wrestled with the manuscript for my novel. Finally, two weeks into the retreat, I scribbled in my journal, oh my God, I have my mind back, it's back, I'm back, what a relief. <laughs> and it was a wonderful feeling, that spacious clarity and intense focus of an unmediated and undistracted mind. In the week of retreat that remained, I was able to penetrate the dense thicket of the novel and see my way through to an end. I brought the manuscript home and started to strictly moderate my online time. I finished a first draft, threw half of it away, wrote a second. It took another three years, but finally, in 2012, I turned in the completed manuscript for a tale for the time being. Phew. So that Hedgebrook retreat taught me something essential about my own neuroplasticity, about how my brain has been changed and reconditioned by digital technologies, but also how it's able to snap back and recover, providing I can take the backward step and create appropriate structures and make time for retreat. I understand now that I have to do this regularly if I want to keep writing novels. That retreat also taught me something about technology and time and our ability to be in time, to, to be time beings. It seems to me that the engine that drives our technological in innovation is our very human desire to defeat time and space. And it seems equally true that every technological innovation has hidden costs. In the same way that the internet can make us lonely by, dis by disabling our appreciation of solitude, I'd argue that it's also making us impatient. In its attempt to defeat time and deliver results at ever faster speeds, the internet is ero eroding our ability to wait, to simply be comfortably in time. Impatience is a dangerous thing. I remember after 9-11 when, in a speech about the war on terror, George W. Bush informed us with some pride that he was not a patient man. I remember worrying about this then, and seeing the outcome now, just over a decade later, I worry even more. It seems to me that we're suffering from an epidemic of impatience, from an inability to imagine anything beyond the immediate future 
which, needless to say, does not bode very well for the stability of our climate or the health of our planet. It's not really our fault, though. Our technologically driven capitalist consumer culture is training us out of any naturally occurring patient habits of mind we might have. Patience doesn't sell. What sells is impatience. From a very young age, we're trained to be impatient and to expect instant gratification because delayed gratification is bad for business. Advertising conditions us to want things now. Internet shopping rewards impatient people with poor impulse control. And I know this. <laughs> and, and this is intentional because patience hurts the economy. It's anti-capitalist, which parenthetically is why practicing patience is perhaps one of the most deeply subversive things that you can do. Impatience is a real problem for writers. Writers are chronically impatient. Generally speaking, writers don't really want to write. We want to have written. <laughs> we have these great, big, marvelous ideas that we know will make stupendous books. And so we tesseract, do you remember that term? We tesseract through time, leaping ahead of ourselves, imagining the wildly enthusiastic acceptance letters pouring in from agents and editors, even before we've written the first page. Then, as we revise the first chapter yet again for the hundredth time, we console ourselves by making shopping lists of all the things we'll buy with our royalty checks even though we don't yet know whether our protagonist's father is going to attempt suicide in chapter three or chapter five, or possibly not at all, we're absolutely certain our friends and family will admire the beautiful book jacket that we've also found time to design in all those moments when we're not writing. Great things will happen. How wonderful we'll feel. Satisfied, completed, vindicated, authorized, and we yearn for that more than anything else in the world because only when we are duly authorized and our book is safely between covers will we be relieved of the uncertainty that plagues us, or so we think. Now, which uncertainty is that? The uncertainty that perhaps what we're doing, writing in general and this novel in particular, is worth the time we're putting into it the worry that maybe we're wasting our time here on Earth. And in this regard, writers are no different from anyone else. We all share this uncertainty, this terrible worry that maybe we're wasting our time here on Earth. Uncertainty, this awful liminal state of not knowing, is the root cause, I think, of our impatience. Not knowing is intolerable. It's like being desperately in love in those first few stricken weeks or months when you don't yet know if your love is requited. Do you remember that? <laughs> that sickening anxiety, the wild, unbridled fantasies, the yawning sense of emptiness and incompletion? You know, just think back to high school, right? These feelings are unbearable because we just want to know. But the state of uncertainty and not knowing, which we find so unbearable, is also where art comes from. Uncertainty is the source of our wildest fantasies. Not knowing is the wellspring of creativity, 
or since those waters are rarely clear and limpid as the word wellspring suggests, let's return to the image of the swamp, the primordial swamp of the generative impulse. The problem is that these days we seem to want to dredge the swamp and clean it up, level it with landfill and build condominiums on top of it, monetize it, concretize it, quantify it, and maximize our profits. This is how we treat creativity these days. Uncertainty, not knowing, these are bad, murky words, and we treat them as problems that need to be clarified and quickly resolved, because we need to know now. And, you know, okay, it's one thing to reach for your iPhone to Google the anatomy of a slug. That's a fairly benign itch to scratch. But our need to resolve our uncertainty now drives us to do unimaginably stupid and outrageous things, too. And while this may not be such a bad thing for writers, because our unimaginably stupid and outrageous behavior becomes excellent material for all those novels that we want so badly to have written, maybe it's not so great for politicians or heads of state. Which is not to say that impatience is a bad thing, either. Insofar as we can learn to tolerate it and not allow it to derail us, impatience is a necessary part of any creative process. Without impatience, we'd never get anything done. We'd all be sitting around, gazing up at the clouds or down at our navels, patiently waiting for, you know, like, whatever. <laughs> it's thanks to impatience, our need to know, our need to resolve our curiosity that books get written and paintings get painted and scientific and te technological breakthroughs get made. The trick, it seems to me, is to train ourselves to bear the seemingly unbearable tension of uncertainty, maybe even enjoy it. We must learn to sit patiently at the edge of, the, at the edge of not knowing, gazing into its turbid depths, waiting for some unthinkable creature to evolve to the point where it can haul itself out and start breathing air. We must be willing to wait for eons and ages. We must be willing to wait forever. Because if we get tired or bored or succumb to our impatience, if we get up and leave our desks and go and watch Game of Thrones or check our inbox for emails from those agents and editors, no one will be there on the edge of the swamp when the impossibly beautiful creature with its now vestigial gills finally emerges from the dark waters. Sad. It heaves itself up and out of the slime, lifts its monstrous head and looks around. It blinks and then, unseen, sashays slowly away into the mangroves. Impatience takes us out of the present moment where ideas evolve, where life gets lived, and writing gets done. So, how do we learn to cultivate patience? How do we learn to live in the moment when the moments are so fleeting? How do we learn to tolerate uncertainty and to take our time? Well, this is where some time management tips from my favorite 13th century Zen master might come in handy. I'm, I'm talking, of course, about Dogen Zenji, who lived from 1200 to 1253. Dogen was the founder of the Soto Zen lineage. He was a radical thinker, a prolific writer, and a kind of pre-modern postmodernist, <laughs> if such a thing is possible. 
And I call him that because of the way that he deconstructs time and narrative and our notions of being. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into a detailed discussion of Dogen's philosophy. <laughs> but let me just leave you with one or two of his time management tips, which I found extremely helpful. The first is from a fascicle, or essay, in which he exhorts us, and actually he's exhorting his young monks, but we can pretend it's us, exhorting us to stay committed to a spiritual path of awakening. And what he does is to perform a kind of rhetorical sleight of hand in order to illustrate the relationship between time and action. He takes time and radically expands it, kind of inflates it or blows it up, by telling us that a single day is actually comprised of 6,400,099,980 moments. So in the time it takes to snap your finger, 65 moments have passed. And then he tells us that every single one of those moments is precious because it's an opportunity to reestablish our will and choose action that will be beneficial to our karma. Even the snap of a finger gives us 65 opportunities to wake up. So I think this is cool because it's kind of like an optical slow motion effect in film. You know, in order to slow down an action, you actually increase the frame rate of film moving through the camera when you're shooting so that more frames uh, pass across the shutter at a faster speed. And so then when it's projected back at normal speed, the image appears to be moving in slow motion. What Dogen is doing is performing a kind of conceptual slow motion effects on our experience of time passing, which is pretty impressive for someone who lived 650 years before the invention of the first motion picture camera. I find his view of time to be quite astonishing. It's so expansive and so generous. It means that there's always enough time if you just slow down. If you just slow down and take your time, you will have plenty of opportunities to choose to do something beneficial, to start writing your novel, for example or to help someone out of a jam, or to be kind instead of impatient. The second time management tip from Dogen is one of my favorites. It's the backward step. And I mentioned this earlier when I talked about my time at Hedgebrook as a backward step, away from the restless and relentless pull of the internet. We can think of the backward step as a retreat, like the kind that Hedgebrook offers, or we can think of it as simply enjoying a few moments of stillness and silence in the middle of a busy day. Because actually, when the rest of the world is rushing relentlessly forward, we don't really even need to step back. We can simply choose to be still for a moment, like a rock in a fast-moving stream. And we can do this from time to time throughout our day, waiting in line at the supermarket cashier or at the bank or when we're stuck in traffic. We can use our naturally arising feeling of impatience as a reminder to relax, to take the backward step, to breathe, and to gain perspective. And, and recently, I've been using my impulse to check email on my cell phone as a, um, as, as a kind of a mindfulness bell. So instead of pulling out my iPhone, you know, when I feel that urge, I take a moment to look around and notice something that I would ordinarily otherwise have missed. I started doing this a few months ago on a plane, and we were just touching down at SeaTac, 
And the minute the tires hit the tarmac, everyone on the plane pulled out their cell phones and started checking messages, right? You've all seen this. And as I was, of course, fumbling for mine and trying to turn it on, um, I happened to look up and notice this very old Chinese couple in the seat kind of across from me. They didn't have smartphones. The woman seemed to have some kind of dementia or cognitive disorder. And she was extremely anxious about her bags in the overhead compartment. She kept trying to stand up, but we were still taxiing, and her very old husband kept pulling her down. He was trying to help her with her coat, and he was so patient and careful, coaxing her into her seat, wrapping the coat around her shoulders, patting her arm, whispering in her ear. And something that he said must have gotten through, because all of a sudden her body just relaxed, and she smiled. It was a big, funny smile. And she closed her eyes, and she started nodding. All the way, as we taxied to the gate, her husband kept patting her arm, and she kept nodding. It was really beautiful. It reminded me of my mother. And I would have missed it if I'd been checking my iPhone. <laughs> I realized in that moment that, as a writer, it's my job to notice things like that. And so I made a promise to myself that every time I felt the urge to check my phone, I'm going to take just that teeny little step backwards and look around and notice something that I would otherwise have missed. It's a good practice for writers, and it's a good practice for everyone. So, back to Dogen. For Dogen, the backward step meant zazen, right, or Zen meditation, what now and old Jiko would call your supapawa. Dogen uses the phrase in an early fascicle called recommending zazen to all people. In this essay, he invites all of us, not just monks and priests, but everyone, to practice meditation. He invites us to, and this is a quote, to learn to take the backward step that turns the light and shines it inward. And what he's describing here is essentially just the practice of being still and tapping the self-reflexive power of the mind to become aware of itself in the present moment, to turn the light of this awareness inward. When you practice this kind of mindfulness, Dogen says, body and mind will naturally drop away and your true nature will manifest itself. In other words, you will experience the very natural and beautiful feeling of connection and oneness with the world. So it sounds nice, right? And Dogen assures us that it's available to us all the time. Now, you know, of course, Dogen didn't know about the internet, and he didn't know about Game of Thrones. <laughs> But I think precisely because of these things, his advice is more timely now than ever. So I'd like to suggest that we just try this right now as a little experiment. Let's take a few moments and practice this backward step together. And if you like it, you can take up the practice on your own. Okay? How does this sound? You up for this? Okay, good. 
So it's very simple. Just if you're holding anything in your hand, put it down on the floor. Just move, keep your lap clear. Good. And then just sit up straight. You can sit up straight. And if you'd like, you can sort of move to the front of your, to the front of your chairs so that you're holding yourself upright as best you can. It's close, it's tight, it's cozy. Okay. And so you just get a sense of feeling of your body sitting in a chair. You, you probably haven't really been aware of this for the last however long that I've been yammering on. So now you have a feeling of the, your body in a chair. And you can close your eyes. So why don't you all close your eyes. And just take a moment to bring your awareness to the different parts of your body. You can start with the top of your head and just take a moment to bring your awareness to your face, to your forehead, to your cheeks, to your jaw, and see if there's any tension there. And if there is, you can just relax it and let it go. And then just allow that awareness to sort of drop down through your neck and down into your shoulders. We carry a lot of tension in our shoulders. And then down into your arms, down into your hands. Take a moment to feel the place where your hands are making contact with your legs. Might be a little bit of warmth there. Just sort of check that out. And then bring your awareness back up to your chest and take a deep breath. And really feel what that breath feels like as it's coming in to your body and leaving your body. You might be able to feel the clothing shift slightly against your rib, rib cage as you inhale and exhale. And then just allow that awareness to drop down to your stomach. And you can really let your stomach relax. We carry our stomachs, we carry a lot of tension in our stomach, so just really allow that to relax. And then just continuing down, bring your awareness to your hips and your legs. Feel the pressure of the bench or the chair underneath you, supporting you, holding you up. And then down your legs into your knees, your shins down into your ankles, all the way to your feet. And then there too, take a moment to feel the floor underneath your feet. The feel the solidity of the floor there. And then just allow your awareness to travel back up through your body and, and just sort of fill it. And once again, if there's any place where you're holding tension, use your breath, breathe into that place and relax and let the tension go. And then just very gently bring that awareness, that light touch of awareness to your breathing. Just breathe naturally. It's not a big deal. Just follow the breath in and out. And just try to keep your, keep your awareness there, but very gently. And if thoughts come up and take you away, it's not a problem. Our minds are made to think. So just notice that you're thinking and you can just let the thought go and return to the breath.
And we'll just sit like that for another moment or two. And then just keeping your eyes closed, you can bring a little movement into your body. Maybe rock back and forth. Just being aware of what that movement feels like. If you'd like, you can take your hands and bring them to your face. Rub your eyes, rub your face. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. That was nice, thank you. <laughs> so, um, how many of you found that? How many of you found that easy? Raise your hand. Okay, good. How many of you found that a little difficult, a little uncomfortable? Yeah, okay, good. Um, how many of you felt that you were doing it? Um, that you were doing it right. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> How many of you felt you were doing it wrong? <laughs> okay, good. How many of you felt your minds were really jumpy? Like, ah, what's going on? Yeah. And how many of you felt, you know, sort of quiet? Good, good, good. Anybody feel sleepy? <laughs> That's my favorite mental state, personally. <laughs> did, it, how did, did you feel time was passing slowly? How many people felt that time was passing slowly? Okay. And how many, time, how many people felt that time was passing really fast? Okay, good. So it's, it's interesting, right? It, it, changes your, it changes the way you experience time. And it's a, it's a wonderful way to sort of play with the way you experience time. So the good news is, is that all of your answers are exactly right. right? There, there's no way to do this practice wrong. There's no way to do it wrong. So whatever you experienced is exactly right. And it's exactly what your meditation is today. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a big deal. You don't have to, you know, sit on the floor and cross your legs and get all kind of oriental and exotic about it. You can just do it in, you know, in a chair very quietly. Um, it's just that sort of gentle, um, you know, return to the breath. The breath is always there. Um, you know, while you're meditating, the breath will always be there. If the breath isn't there, then you're not meditating. <laughs> Something else is happening. So... <laughs> 
you can have faith that the breath will always be there for you, right? Um, you know, it all, it all comes back to time. It comes back to our relationship with time. We spend most of our waking hours, you know, about four billion moments in a day, either leaning into the future or worrying about the past. We're chronically overstimulated, and we rarely give our bodies and minds a break or pay attention to how they're doing. So this, you know, a meditation practice like this just be, is a way of becoming intimate with time and with time passing. It's a way of slowing time down and waking up from the trance of our lives. It's a way of fully being in time. Or, in other words, it's a way of being a better and more effective time being. So, on that note, I think we're actually uh, just about run out of time. And um, I hope that this time management advice from 13th century Japan will be helpful to you. Um, thank you for spending these uh, approximately 200 million of your precious moments of your lives with me. And um, I think that we're now going to go and, and have some questions. Thank you. <laughs> My goodness, thank you so much. That was beautiful and inspiring and relaxing. Good, good, good. Relaxing is good. Relaxing yeah. is good. So please write your questions on question cards and pass them to ushers. I'd love to start with a couple questions about a tale for the time being. Sure. I, I loved Now's voice. It was so authentic and so idiosyncratic and compelling. Could you talk about how that voice developed for you? Yeah, sure. You know, for me, novels usually come to me first as a voice of some kind. And, um, I, and it was back in, I think it was in 2006, I first heard that voice. And, and it was just the lines in the, the book. Um, you know, she, she just kind of announced herself and said, you know, hi, my name is now and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I will tell you. And... Um, you know, and, and so it was a very distinctive voice, and I, you know, when, when a character starts to speak to you like that, you, you know, you sit up and pay attention. Um, but I, you know, when I, when I look at what she said and I look at the way that she, you know, sort of appeared to me, I realized that, that she was very much an outgrowth of the, actually the reading, um, the Dogen Zenji reading that I had been doing. I'd been working with a, a fascicle, an essay called um, uji in, in Japanese, um, which is being time or time being or for the time being. It can be translated in different ways. Um, and the translation that I was um, working with, I, I was looking at the original, but I was also looking at the, the English translations. And the translation just had a, there was an odd ambiguity about it because the, um, the translator used the phrase for the time, for the time being. But the context in which it was set, it was hard to know whether it was for the, for the time being or for the time being, right? Mm -hmm. And so I kept reading it as time being, as, mm -hmm. as though, you know, it were an alien being or, you know, a human being or some sort of entity, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's really what, um, that, that it was that sort of... Um, uh, instability of the the phrase that lodged in my mind and now 
you know, sort of misread it or, or read it as time being, of course, because she's 16. And, 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 um, and so that's, I think, where that came from. You know, yeah. it, it came from that, that, that translation. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's odd to think that, you know, that this entire book could have come from something, you know, as small as that. I met that, I know the translator. The translator is a friend of mine. Oh. And um, we've had a long conversation about this and it's, it was really funny. Yeah. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that is a departure from your earlier books mm. in a, a Tale for the Time mm. Being is this magic that enters in and you yeah. leave the everyday world that we all expect. What was it like yeah. for you? What made you make that choice and what was yeah. it like to work with magical realism? Well, you know, I didn't really think of it as magical realism per se. Mm -hmm. um, it was more, um, as I was working on the book, I started to, and, and don't forget that I was, I was really immersed in Dogen's writings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 12th, 13th century Japan um, was not, a, you know, the materialist, rationalist, you know, mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, post-enlightenment, mm -hmm. you know, culture that we have now. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to let go of, of some of the, that bias, you know, that mm -hmm. framework, um, and, and start to read Dogen as though, you know, as though... Um, it were real, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, it, it shifts. It shifts things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so I think that you know that what's happening in the book is is more just a kind of a performance of you know certain uh, principles, you know, Dogen Dogen uh, philosophy, mm -hmm. um, but on his terms. Mm -hmm. Right, in, in sort of the terms of, of 13th century Japan, not in our kind of materialist, rationalist, you know, logical, you know, empirical kind of, you know, modern framework. Uh -huh. So I think that's, you know, and it was wonderful. It was, it was so much fun to do. It was so nice to let go of all of that. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about the decision to bring yourself in as a character to yeah, the book? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was such an interesting journey. Um, when I first started, you know, when I first heard Now's voice, she was obviously talking to somebody. Um, she was, or she was writing to somebody. She was, you know, I had this, you know, she, she basically announced that she was going to write this diary and she was going to cast it into the world and that somebody would read it, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, her voice was appearing in my mind, so of course I thought, you know, I might be her reader, you know. And immediately just discarded that idea because it seemed so postmodern and so kind of tricky and, you know, metafictional and, you know, these things that, that I didn't really like. And so I discarded it. And then I spent three years, four years, I guess, maybe even longer, um, actually it was more like five years, looking for, trying to find a reader for her, trying to cast a fictional reader in that role, right? And I kept coming up with readers and, and, you know, and I'd write and, and it wouldn't work and I'd, you know, you know, sort of throw away the manuscript, try it again, you know, over and over again um, until finally I actually did finish a, a you know, a, a version of the book, a draft of the book that was completely different from the one that's, that's out now. Mm -hmm. And I was about to turn it in to my editor and, um, and this was at the beginning of uh, 2011. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when the earthquake and tsunami hit, right? right? And it was, um, you know, I, uh, I have friends and family in Japan. It was a really, you know, it was, it was, it was one of those events that c creates a kind of rift in time, mm -hmm. you know. And suddenly there was, 
pre-earthquake Japan, and then there was post-earthquake Japan. Mm -hmm. And I had written this book, and the book belonged in a kind of pre-earthquake, pre-tsunami, pre-Fukushima, mm -hmm. you know, culture, you know, world. And now we were living in a different world. Yeah. And, um, and, and it just wasn't going to work. And so I took the book back, and I was, once again, just thinking that I would have to abandon it. Um, and then it was actually my husband at that point, Oliver, who said, mm -hmm. you know, reality has broken the world. You know, reality has broken the world. It's certainly broken your fictional world. Um, so the only thing to do really is to acknowledge that and allow the world to be broken. And the way to allow the world to be broken is to step in as a character yourself. Right. Uh. And so I thought that was, you know, that was a good argument. That was, that was the only argument that, that really would have convinced me to do it mm -hmm. because it allowed me to comment directly on the events, mm -hmm. you know. And um, so I thought it was a great idea and I, you know, thanked him and I said, you know, great idea, Oliver, but you do understand, don't you, that if I'm in the book, then you have to be in the book too. <laughs> and what did he say to that? He agreed. He said that he thought it would be an interesting thought experiment. <laughs> ah. <laughs> One of our audience members would like to know, what was it like for you to record the audio book for the oh, Tampa Time Being? Oh, my gosh. It, the whole multi-format platform mm -hmm. thing that we're pub doing in publishing now is so interesting to me. You know, because the book came out as an audio book, it came out as an e-book, and it came out in paper, right? And the... You know, the ebook is a completely different experience than reading it as a book in paper, on, on paper, because mm -hmm. of the way the footnotes are kind of laid out and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And then the audiobook is a completely different experience, again, because a lot of, the, you know, because um, the there are no footnotes, right? The, right. There, there's no footnotes, mm -hmm. there's no appendix, the appendices at the end, mm -hmm. you know, I, I chose not to put those in. But what I was able to do instead was to work the material into the spoken text. And, you know, and so what it lost in the, you know, in, it, you know, you could say that it lost something in the appendices, but what it gained was the performance element, mm -hmm. right? And the kind of momentum of, you know, a time-based performance. And, you know, publishers don't really like to let novelists read their own work. And I think it's because they're afraid that we're going to be a little bit too precious about it, you know, and that we might, um, you know, we might want to make changes, you know, in the manuscript when it's too late, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or that we're not good readers, you know. And, um, and so I, but I really felt that, you know, I was in this book. I should read it, you know. <laughs> I'm in it. I'm not going to let somebody else read it. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that if you, if you put in enough uh, Japanese into the, <laughs> into the text that, you know, they might let you, they'll let you read it. And, um, and so that's what, I, that's what I did. And I um, made a case for it. And, um, and I did the reading. And uh, can, can I brag just a little bit? Yeah, okay, okay. definitely. So, you know, because I was an amateur and, you know, it was my first time reading an audio book, they, um, they booked uh, two weeks of studio time for me, right? So that's 10 days, 80 hours of studio time for me to do this. And I did it in four and a half days. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say that I've never enjoyed anything as much 
you know, having to do with publishing as I enjoyed reading that audiobook. I had wow. such a good time. I was worried, I was afraid that I might not be able to do it, you know. Oh. But what happened is that as soon as I sat down and opened my mouth, you know, the, the characters were there, you know, and they, mm -hmm. they were emerging and they had voices and um, I, I loved, I just loved doing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the time when you write a book, you send off, you know, you send off a manuscript off to the, you know, your editor and, and somehow it gets kind of magically made into a book without you actually having to print out the pages and collate them and, you know, and all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Stitch the binding. Um, so it's a kind of a magical thing that the book suddenly becomes, that the manuscript becomes a book, right? Mm -hmm. But with the audiobook, I actually had to bring up every single one of those words, sort of up through my body again, mm -hmm. and out my mouth. And it was, it was kind of like giving birth in a way mm -hmm. that, you know, I'd never experienced with a book before. Mm -hmm. And it was really beautiful. It was a wonderful experience. I, I, I hope, I hope I'll be able to do it again sometime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another so. audience member yeah. would like to know, is there a movie in the works <laughs> for A Tale for the Time Being? Now, there's something. If there were a movie in the works, I would not be the one to be making it. You know? <laughs> Perfectly willing to let somebody else do that. Um, not that I know of, but you know, they're, they're always looking to shop it around. So if anybody here is dying to make a movie <laughs> of the book, let me know. <laughs> and as a filmmaker, how do you feel that that has affected your work as a novelist? Um, I think that I approach my um, uh, my writing uh, from a very you know from a f kind of a filmic you know perspective in the sense that very often um, I use techniques in the editing, for example, and scene construction and stuff that I think I must I think I learned it you know in the editing room as a you know when I was making uh, film and television. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, you know I I do re I remember that. Um, I, I always wanted to be a novelist. I never wanted to be a filmmaker at all. It was never, you know, it, it never really interested me that much. Um, but when I tried to write novels, like all through high school, all through college, after college, you know, trying to write novels, I kept being defeated by time. You know, I kept being defeated by the simple act of, of bringing a character in one door and across the room to the other corner where the action's happening, right? And, and my characters would insist on sort of walking step by step across <laughs> the room. And I didn't know how to speed it up. I didn't know how to, you know, to make this, you know, to make narrative work in time. And it wasn't until I got into the editing room um, of a, you know, of a film and, and television studio and learned that there were actual techniques that, you know, that you use in order to mm -hmm. tesseract, you know, in order to cut quickly through time. Mm -hmm. um, that's really where I learned to do it. That's where I learned to build scenes. That's where I learned to, you know, to, to, um, you know, to, to write a novel, to construct a novel that would work. And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, I certainly learned you know, how to do that from the film world. And I think, though, that what you see in the books, you know, all of that kind of cogitation, you know, mm -hmm. is exactly why I was not a very good filmmaker, you know, because all of that kind of mental activity that, you know, is in the book, the kind of, you know, musing and speculation and all of that stuff does not really work that well in film. Um, <laughs> film is a much more visceral, quick, vis you know, visual um, uh, medium, so thinking does not work so well in film. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, we have time for just a couple mm. more questions. One from an audience member would like to know the purpose or symbolism behind the crows that, in the Ruth portion of the narrative. 
that is completely up to you. <laughs> that is, you know, the way I look at these things, you know, um, it, it's really fascinating. You know, the, the book is all about sort of the multiverse, right? You know, the, the many worlds theory. And, and novels are exercises in, books are exercises in, in many worlds, right? And, and every, you know, I write a book and I send it out into the world and, and you know, hopefully, hopefully you all will read it. Um, and, and every, you know, the book that you and I, it, then it becomes a collaboration, right? So the book that you and I make is going to be completely different from the book that you and I make, right? And, and so in that way, worlds proliferate. And, and I really believe that with symbolism too, that, you know, that the symbolism is really what you invest it with, right? Mm -hmm. And so it could be different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fine. Mm. Yeah. Related to that, I read a beautiful thing that you said about the book, that it was a love letter between a writer and a reader. Yes. And I'd love to hear you explain yeah. 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 how yeah. so. Well, the book is really about the relationship between a writer and a reader, you know, and mm. the writer is, you know, the writer is this young 16-year-old girl in, in Japan, and the reader is this blocked novelist named Ruth who lives in Desolation Sound. And... Um, <laughs> And, um, and in a way, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's Now's act of speaking, of casting her words out into the world that calls Ruth into being, right? Mm -hmm. That Ruth exists, she arises, you know, to meet Now, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, but you can also see it as, you know, the relationship between a character and a novelist, too. Mm -hmm. You know, that the character speaks and calls the novelist into being. Right. And so it's these it's exactly these kinds of relationships between, you know, character, um, you know, character, writer, reader, mm -hmm. which I see as being kind of mutually interdependent. You know, they mm -hmm. feed each other. The readers call novelists into being without readers. There would not be any novelists. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's it's all kind of, you know, it, it, each each calls the other into being in this kind of beautiful flow. Right. Mm -hmm. It's what Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. And, and I think that the book is kind of a performance of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think yeah. everyone here tonight feels so lucky that your yeah. words have called us all to be readers <laughs> to share tonight with you. Please join me in thanking Ruth Ozeki. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> that was Ruth Ozeki at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2014. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle arts and lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.